Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, and it takes just a few seconds. Then, during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. Where it says that, you enter other people, and when you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to lots of other amazing content too, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge or get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. (laughs) This is it. This is other people. This is what you're ingesting. This is how you have chosen to entertain yourself. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Listy. And uh, I figured I would start things off here today by reading some more mail, another kind email from a listener. Her name is Candace. Her letter reads, Dear Brad Listy and other people, your podcast is my new favorite thing for the following reasons. One, I recently moved to a new apartment, increasing my daily bike commute by six miles. I started listening to your podcast on my headphones both ways, and it lightens the blow because two, your show is totally awesome, uh, entertaining, inspiring, funny, evolving. I don't listen to the episodes in chronological order, which really offers me a sense of how it seems to be ripening over time. Three, it makes writing feel real. Your interviews leave the writer's room to be people and not just writers. I really enjoy listening to them talk about their painfully ordinary lives for completely selfish reasons, namely that your conversations make me feel like I can do this too. As a fresh out of an MFA writer, four, I'm groping for insight and I'm finding it in other people. Thank you for creating this. I guess I just wanted you to know that Candace. So thank you, Candace. That is lovely. Uh, thank you for the kind words. Uh, of course I enjoy hearing that sort of thing. I like knowing that the show is registering, 
though I should say, in all fairness, that it doesn't always register. Uh, I received word earlier this week via Twitter from a listener named Stephen who heard episode 100, the George Saunders interview, and said, quote, in a tweet, uh, the questions are lame, but George Saunders answers well. Uh, a long chat with the greatest, or maybe the greatest living short story writer, end quote. Uh, so in the, in the spirit of fairness, I actually retweeted that tweet uh, because I think that uh, all feedback is valuable and I like hearing it, even if it's not always necessarily positive. And uh, after I retweeted that, Stephen immediately tweeted a response saying, quote, I was being, quote, Twitter glib uh, when I called your questions lame. George found them perceptive enough, so what the fuck do I know? End quote. So uh, that's interesting. And, uh, you know, I, like I said, I like hearing from listeners regardless of what the response is because otherwise it's hard for me to know what's happening out there. I see the numbers. I know that a lot of people are listening, but I do find myself wondering sometimes uh, what are people thinking? What is the response? And uh, I'm also just generally curious as to who you people are. Who are you out there listening? Uh, what are you doing? Where are you from? And so if you want to write to me and let me know who you are or you want to uh, write to me to let me know your thoughts on the program specifically, the email address, once again, is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And hey, while I'm thinking about it, please remember to subscribe to the podcast at iTunes if you haven't done that yet. It's free of charge, does not cost anything. Uh, if you do that, each new episode will be automatically downloaded to your iTunes. And uh, the show is also available free of charge at Stitcher if you're a Stitcher person and you would like to subscribe there. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is David Abrams. He is a 20-year veteran of the United States Army. He is a journalist. His stories have appeared in magazines and journals like Esquire and the Missouri Review. His debut novel, entitled Fobbit, is now available from Grove Atlantic, and it is receiving an unbelievable amount of critical acclaim. Publishers Weekly says, quote, Abrams, uh, Abrams's debut is a harrowing satire of, of the Iraq War and an instant classic. This novel nails the comedy and the pathos, the boredom and the dread, crafting the Iraq War's answer to Catch-22, end quote. So how's that for a critical response to your debut novel? Very pleased to have David on the show, and also pleased to note uh, that he's a big fan of the program, which he has been kind enough to let me know. He's been a supporter from the very beginning. So here it is, you guys, my conversation with David Abrams about his superb debut novel entitled Fobbit. Uh, what is a Fobbit? You're about to find out. 
right now I am in my uh, basement of my home in Butte, Montana. Uh, my wife and I live in a, a 1920s craftsman home, and uh, it's a really nice home. And then I uh, I come down here to my uh, to my office. This is my office down in the basement. I come down here every morning, and this is where I, I do the work. Okay, so you you uh-huh. write in you write in your basement. You're working uh, a full time job, and then you write in the early mornings. Yeah. Yeah, um, I get up uh, at the ungodly hour of three thirty every day, uh, pretty much seven days a week. Uh, I know a lot of you know a lot of people, a lot of people drop their dentures when I when I say that, but uh, that's how I felt. It, that's that's the best way I can uh, find to fit it into my schedule, my writing into my schedule with working a forty an hour, forty hour a week job, day job. So I get up at three thirty every morning, uh, get a cup of coffee, get a glass of water. And uh, come down here to my basement, and uh, where I'm surrounded by uh, piles and piles of books, and uh, sit at my desk and uh, and start writing. Jesus, so, so I mean, and so seven days a week, getting up at three thirty. The, the fact that you have a military background helps. Like I find that anybody I know who's uh, been in the military tends to be an early riser. It sort of becomes hardwired into you. But three thirty's early, even for that. <laughs> it is. Um, Actually, actually, I'm getting up earlier now than I ever did in the army. Uh, you know, when I was in the army, I used to think, "Oh my God, I got to get up." But I think the earliest I would get up is 4:30. Got to get up at 4:30, and I got to drive for half an hour to the base, and I got to do PT or I do push-ups and sit-ups and run for four miles. Uh, you know, you know. Whenever I was in the army, I I I, I basically dreaded those days, those moments. And I said, man, when I get out, I'm never going to get up this early again. But here I am. <laughs> I was going to say, here now, I am at 3.30. Now, now look at you. So you, you you obviously have to set an alarm. It's not like you're popping up at 3.30, right? No, I, I, I set an alarm. Yeah, I set an alarm. And actually, I'm, I'm, I've been waking up before the alarm, you know, which is a good thing as far as my wife is concerned, so that uh, I can just shut it off uh, before it goes off and... Uh, and slip quietly out of bed, tiptoe out of the room, and and, uh, and come down here and work. Well, no, that's what I was going to say. Whenever I set an alarm, I always have like the anticipatory wake up. It messes with my head, <laughs> you know. Like I'll find myself like waking up a half an hour before it goes off. But um, yeah, exactly. You know, not to not to hammer this too hard, but uh, it's sort of amazing to think that you're getting up at three thirty every morning to write seven days a week. I mean, like, what time are you going to bed at night? Like, are you crashing at eight, or are you somebody who can? Yeah, well. Yeah, actually, um, probably sometime around nine, ten at the very latest. If my wife and I make it all the way to eleven watching the movie, then it has to be a pretty damn good movie to keep us awake that long. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, and you know, I, I should also say that this three thirty in the morning gig is fairly recent within the last, I don't know, year and a half, two years maybe, uh, when I got really serious about the final revisions on my novel, and uh, just you know really needed to discipline myself. Um, that's why I started getting up this early. I mean, normally, normally I wouldn't do this and I'm, I'm hoping that I can get back to somewhat of a, a regular schedule, uh, which would probably be 4.30 or 5.30 at this point. But, um, so it's a fairly recent thing and, and I'll be honest, it, it does kind of wear you down, just kind of grinds at your bones after a while. Yeah. I mean, you know, just cause I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think there are some people who are wired, in our, uh, you know, to be, uh, up all night, you know what I'm saying? Like there are nocturnal people. Uh, I'm not one of them, but I have to have. Uh, I think I have to have a, a fairly regular schedule. You know what I'm saying? Like up, I, I can get up early, but getting up in the middle of the night is essentially what you're doing, and that's got to be, I don't know, throwing off your rhythms a little bit. <laughs> 
Yeah, it is. It's, I think, you know, whatever, whatever my, uh, my uh, diurnal or circadian rhythms are, are thrown off. But, you know, I found that getting up that early is nice because I've got the whole place to myself, except for my cats that come down and bother me sometimes. i got the whole place to myself. It's quiet. There's no distractions as long as I've turned off my Internet switch on my computer the night before. There's no distractions. It's just me and the page. Right. Well, no, so, that's the thing. It's uh, like, it's like... I found that that's... No, I was just going to say it's, a, it's such a, a wonderfully quiet time to be working. <laughs> it is, it is, and you know, really, when I was when I was younger, I was I used to think of myself as a night owl. I would I would stay up till eleven, twelve sometimes. I'd never work way way late into the night, but yeah, I, I used to I used to think of myself as a night owl, and now I can't even imagine staying awake that long. Yeah, you were talking about seeing movies earlier, and I, like I haven't—I don't think I've stayed awake through a movie since my daughter was born. Like it's just—I you know, I, I I know, man. I don't care what it is; I'll nod off like fifteen minutes into yeah, it. Exactly. Um, so you know, I—I I, I guess the next thing I would uh, like to ask you about is—is is how you're feeling uh, because you're getting such amazing early responses to this novel. I mean, the the Publishers Weekly review. Uh, calls it what an instant classic. Uh, that's about as good as you can hope for. <laughs> yeah, man, I, man, I tell you, when I saw that, I just about, I just about dropped my dentures. You know, it's, it was just amazing. I've, I've just been, I, I guess I've been floored. I've just been um, surprised uh, by all the, by all the things, all of the nice things people said, and I've been hearing from some, re- some, some readers themselves who've had advanced copies, and, and they're, they're really kind to. Um, but I've just, uh, it's, it's quite a ride. You know, it's taken me about 30 years to get to this point uh, where I can put debut author, debut novelist in front of my name. Um, so it's, it's been a long ride, and I'm, I'm just enjoying it. I'm just enjoying it so far. Yeah, well, I mean, no, it's 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 wonderful, and it, it it's kind of I think the, the the dream of anybody who's who's rolling a book out into the world for the first time to have that kind of critical reception. It really is, and you know, I've I've been kind of on the periphery of, of the publishing world for a little while, doing a blog and and reviewing books. So I know, you know, I know that that book critics and reviewers they just get piles and piles of books, like I do. Um, they get piles of books, and you know, there are some great books uh, that I've read over the years that have just kind of fallen into fallen into uh, forgetfulness. You know, just kind of withered away for for no good reason. I think other than just the fact that there's such a volume of books being put out every year. I mean, man, you yeah. know, it's incredible. Yeah, no, no, it's, and it's hard to get. You know, it's hard for a book to distinguish itself, even even one that's worthy. You know. Yeah, exactly. And again, I have no illusions about my book. You know, there. You know, it may be. It may take off, or it just may stay the same, or you know, it just might drop off the radar. So, who was it? Um, was it Jonathan Franzen? Somebody had a book that came out on 9/11 on that Tuesday, and uh, and you know, it's, you know, so I guess there's things like that can always um, can always happen, you know. Yeah, you, know, you, his... have any, you don't have any control over what's going to happen uh, surrounding your book coming out. Right. Well, but I mean, you know, you at the same time, it's like it's better to have it come out like this than it is to have it come out with no review coverage. You know, like at least you, oh, exactly. At least you have exactly. a fighting chance. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I'm counting my lucky stars every day. I really do. So let's talk about the origin of the book. I mean, this is obviously rooted in your military experience over in Iraq, and uh, I guess maybe the, the, maybe just to to give everybody some. Um, you know, some good context. Let's, let's first define Fobbit. Ah, Fobbit. 
Okay, FOBIT is a slang term uh, given to soldiers who, who rarely, if ever, uh, leave the forward operating base, which we call the FOB. Um, so it's kind of a mashup between um, FOB and uh, Hobbit from, from J.R.R. Tolkien. Remember in, in The Hobbit, you know, he described these creatures who rarely, who rarely went outside their shire. They were kind of shy creatures, uh, timid, cowardly. Um, so, yeah, so a Hobbit is somebody who um, would pretty much hang around the base, and whether they made excuses not to go outside the concertina wire into the action on the streets, or whether, like me, they just worked themselves into such a frenzy of a work schedule that, that they never had time uh, to go outside to, outside into um, Baghdad or Kabul or wherever. So um, so that's pretty much what a fobbit is. Um, and it's, a, you know, it's kind of a scornful term these days. Uh, you don't want to be called a fobbit uh, if, you're, if you're a soldier over there. Um, although, like I said, I... I, I've worn the badge, I don't know, proudly, but I've worn the badge. Um, and so the, so the book, just to give you some quick context, the book kind of follows two sets of soldiers. There's some public affairs uh, soldiers who are the fobbits, and then there's uh, some combat arms soldiers who, um, who get engaged in a series of blunders outside uh, the gates, outside in, in Baghdad, and the public affairs soldiers in turn have to kind of clean up the, the public affairs mask, the media Well, and, you know, that's interesting because the tension that exists between those two competing interests, you know, where you have the uh, the PR team, essentially, and then you have the soldiers in the streets. You know, I think there's always been spin when it comes to justifying or explaining uh, war and the accidents of war and all the other uh, stuff that comes along with it. But it feels like and, and, you know, you can obviously speak to this better than I can, but it feels like in the age of the Internet and in the age of the 24 hour media cycle that the uh, job of spinning and the job of controlling information becomes that much more critical and possibly that much more difficult or is it easier? Oh. I mean, you know, like what, like how do you, how do you think about that now that you've been through it um, on the ground? I would say, um, yeah, I think you're right. I would say also that the military as a whole or commanders in particular are really nervous about the internet. At least they were when I was, I was over there in 2005. So um, I think the the fact that we had such instant communication um, was kind of it was a real cause of concern, and 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 in some cases rightly so, rightly justified. Um, well, you've got what, soldiers. What, what, what about Abu Ghraib? I mean, wasn't that uh, that was like cell phone pictures and you know all that kind of stuff was a huge uh, that, that was a huge problem, obviously. You know, so. Uh, I'm wondering when that was. I can't place it. I don't know if that was pre-2005. It seemed like it was. Yeah, it was. I think, um, I can't remember the exact date. It was either two, probably 2003, 2004, I think. I, I, I know that it happened before I got over there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there would, you know, it was, there was, there was instances like that, you know, major, in, major, major incidents as well as just your ordinary uh, you know, a soldier dies, and we don't want uh, soldiers in that unit telling the family about it before they're officially notified. And so sometimes uh, the commanders uh, would put a blackout on all of the Internet communication uh, with the soldiers, um, you know, communicating back to their families. Um, so, so you know, like I said, it was, a, it was a real cause of concern. It certainly kept us busy in the public affairs world as well. Well, how did, and how did you get into the military? Like, what was your history in the military prior to Iraq? 
Uh, well, I joined the Army in uh, 1988. So I put in a full 20 years. I retired in, 20, in 2008. Um, how I got into the Army? Uh, four words. Student loans and pregnant wife. <laughs> <laughs> I had... Uh, I had uh, graduated with a BA in English from the University of Oregon in um, in 1987, and uh, then moved to Montana, uh, small some small towns here, a couple lived in a couple small towns, and worked as a worked as a newspaper reporter and a, a wire editor at these, at these newspapers, and uh, we already had two children, two small boys at that point, and then um, uh, my wife got pregnant with our third child. And student loans were were due, and bills were due, and uh, we just saw the uh, we saw the military as a as a secure job, and as a as a good paycheck, and something to do uh, just for a, just just as a quick fix. Uh, well, that quick fix turned out to be you know 20 years on down the line. Uh, so I ended up staying in the army, um, joined as a uh, as a public affairs soldier as a journalist. And worked my way up, uh, you know, as an enlisted soldier to the rank of sergeant, and so on. Um, when I um, when I retired from the army, I was a master sergeant, um, and uh, had never been uh, to combat until uh, 2005, when I joined the Third Infantry Division. I joined the Third Infantry Division out of uh, Savannah, uh, Georgia, and. Uh, uh, had never been to war. I'd, I'd uh, never deployed to a combat zone, and uh, so I came down on orders to to join the Third Infantry Division, and uh, teamed up with them in 2004. And uh, January 2nd, 2005, I found myself on a plane bound for Kuwait, and then after that, on to Baghdad. So okay. that's kind of how I got into the military and how I got into. Iraq itself. Okay, so prior to 2005 or, or prior to 2004, when you got the call to join the Third Inter- Infantry Division, most of your uh, army work had been confined to where uh, and, and what kind of journalism, or, or you know what I'm saying, or public relations were you doing? Yeah, um, well, I'm, I um, I started off my very first uh, my very first duty assignment was in Atlanta, of all places, a little small army post there called Fort McPherson. And um, it was probably the worst introduction to the army I could ever have, uh, because there was no, there were no combat arms soldiers there. There was no regular soldier type uh, uh, activity going on there. It was, it was mostly a headquarters uh, for Forces Command. And so, when I was there, I was working on the Post newspaper. Uh, we would put out our internal communication um, newspapers. And those would go around to the soldiers and families and the retirees in the area. Um, so yeah, I was writing stories. I was I was you know happy as a as a pig and shit you know writing writing stories and uh, taking photos and doing interviews. And this is what I thought that my whole army career would be like: is being able to to just sit around and be a reporter, be a journalist. Well, then as you get older, as you progress, and you start um, getting promoted to higher ranks and higher responsibility, uh, then the writing drops off more and more, and uh, you become, uh, you, you eventually become an NCO, a sergeant, and you're in, you're in charge of other soldiers. So some of the writing kind of dropped off after a while and uh, started doing more, more sort of admin-type duties and a lot of media relations and community and community relations. Okay, so um, let me so stop, let me stop of, you there, actually, because like those two... 
those two terms interest me like because I want to know what it entails when you say uh, media relations does that mean you're just you're, you're constantly talking with the mainstream press like you're the liaison between uh, the, the service and and the mainstream press you're the spokesman yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, or you might take uh, reporters out and you might, you might escort them out. Um, if we were doing a training exercise, then the reporters would come on to the, uh, to the military post. We'd have to meet them at the main gate and we escort them in. You know, it's, it's pretty tightly controlled. Um, obviously, we're not going to control what they say or write, um, but we can, we can definitely show them the things we want them to see and, and play up uh, some of the aspects of the of the soldier's life, of the training, of the mission uh, that we want them to see. So, yeah, that's that's kind of what media relations is like. And then community relations is um, uh, it's more dealing with um, just some more general things from the from the public, uh, rather you know all the people who are not media, all of the like the Rotary groups and and just you know ordinary citizens um, who are living outside the, the gates of the base, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, and when you were speaking about doing uh, media relations and talking about showing uh, media kind of uh, a selective view of what was going on, like I definitely, there are two things that come to mind. First of all is watching the the quote-unquote embedded reporters uh, from, you know, combat operations in Iraq. Like I remember seeing that on the news and, and there was, you know, obviously a lot of discussion about what embedded reporters were allowed to see and the other thing that popped into my mind was uh, the Vietnam War. And I remember spending an afternoon uh, at some point during the Iraq War, like on YouTube and watching old Vietnam War footage and kind of, uh, you know, it was kind of mind blowing to see how much like sort of unfettered access it seemed like reporters had to the action on the ground by comparison. It seemed like there was a lot messier coverage of the Vietnam War and that maybe um, the military had learned a lesson from that or was trying to prevent a similar kind of coverage? Like, is that an accurate read on it? I mean, because I'm, I'm operating, obviously, from a limited perspective, but it sort of seemed like a lot of the coverage that I saw and a lot of the coverage that I continue to see is, is scrubbed, or at least it's it's sort of tamped down, whereas, like, the Vietnam War footage that you see was, you know, reporters running and cameras and bullets are flying and civilians are, you know, it was a lot of really raw footage. Exactly. Yeah, I think I think that Vietnam was kind of the touchstone as far as Army public affairs is concerned. When I came in to the Army in 1988, uh, we still had there. There were still people who had been in Vietnam who were now who were who were still serving in the Army. Now they were the now they were the colonels and the generals, especially of, of the Army and the sergeants major. Um, so they had been in a, they had been in uh, Vietnam. And uh, they had, uh, quote-unquote, learned their lesson about speaking to the media. Um, you know, what was it, during the, during the um, Vietnam where we had the Friday, the Friday Night Follies or something like that, where they would, they would give briefings, were very canned briefings in the tent there to the reporter, to the media pool. And um, it, that, that was a very skewed, um, you know, portrait of what was going on. But sure, yeah, I think, I think uh, Vietnam really had... Um, really had an impact on the army and, and public affairs and how we deal uh, with the media. But when you're talking about the embedded reporters, especially like in a, in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, I think the media or I think the army is starting to soften and, and evolve a little bit uh, back to a little more um, free form or a little bit looser 
uh, hold on the media than it, than it did in the post-Vietnam War, in the post-Vietnam uh, years. Because uh, I think, um, you know, what you're seeing out there with the embedded reporters is, yeah, they're, they're going out with the units, and they're kind of like Ernie Pyle, you know, where they're getting down with the soldiers and, and getting the soldiers, um, you know, story from their mouths rather than, rather than whatever they're, you know, some major uh, from public affairs escorting them might want them to, to see or, or hear. So, so I, think, I think there's a little bit of softening there, a little bit of a, an, sort of an evolution uh, towards something a little bit better. And why? I mean, like, you know what I'm saying? Is there a motivation or, a, you know, is the Army acting in its own interest in, in doing that softening? Or is it just basically, uh, you know, relaxing because of, uh, you know, an, an, an allegiance to freedom of the press or whatever? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, is, yeah. there, is, there, is there a reason for it that goes beyond that? Well, I'd say that, I'd say, I, think in, I think in some respects that the Army uh, thinks of it as a gamble um, because, you know, um, you know, you, you never know what the what the reporter is going to report back, um, and so there's a little bit of nervousness there. Uh, but you just have to develop a trust uh, between between you and the reporter, and you, and you develop a relationship over the years. Um, if you're you know from a certain place long enough, or if you get to know a reporter, um, say you know somebody works at ABC or New York Times or whatever, uh, you do you do establish a relationship, and so you have to you have to get a relationship of trust, but but yeah, I think it's I think it's certainly a little bit of a gamble on the army's part, and I think again going back to what we were saying about uh, being living in an internet age, you know, it's almost a, a shrug of a, a shrug of the sol- sh- shoulders. Um, hey, you know the, the public's going to get the news one way or another, um, so you know let's at least have a little bit of play in, in how they get their news. Well, but and it just I mean it's obviously like just as a citizen, it feels so important to have. Uh, as clear access as possible to what's happening and to have, I mean, frankly, there needs to be more coverage of, I mean, when, when we're engaged in wars and like, you know, 99% of the general public seems so detached from it, uh, you know, because such a small percentage of the population is actually out there doing the the fighting and, and putting themselves at risk. It there feels like a big disconnect. And I feel like if you don't have, uh, you know, the raw footage, so to speak, then it's hard for the the public to, hold leadership like political leadership accountable do you know what I'm, you know it's just obvious stuff but i i'm i'm of the mind that like i'd like to see I'd, I'd rather know even if it's difficult like what is going on you know oh exactly i no, i agree and as somebody who's been out of uniform for you know four years now or whatever um I, no i i totally agree i i i want those i want those intimate stories uh, with the soldiers out there i want that intimate footage um, because I think it does bring the war home, and I think the war does need to be brought home uh, to people who, you know, are going about their their daily lives, and it's no fault of their own, but they don't they don't really give two thoughts about Iraq or Afghanistan unless there's a major thing going on, or unless their son or their daughter or their friend or somebody they know, their brother, is over there. I think those are the people that that pay attention. But I'll tell you, Brad, I got to be honest with you, since I've been well, when I was when I was in the army, when I was in Iraq, and in the years right after I came back, I would read all the news stories about Iraq, and and you know it's like, hey, I was there, or hey, I remember, I remember this, and you know I I have a vested interest in it. But in the years since then, you know I can't remember the last time I paid really close attention 
uh, to what was going on in the Middle East. Uh, it, it's a shame. It, it's, a, it's a crime. But, you know, is it a bur- is it burnout? What, is it burnout? You say? Yeah. I mean, are, are you were you just burned out? I mean, for God's sakes, you were over there in the thick of it. I can. I mean, it sort of feels like you have an excuse to want some time off from thinking about it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know if it was that so much as just, it, I think the noise of Iraq and Afghanistan just kind of faded in with the rest of the noise of the, in the media, you know? Um, so, I don't know. And, and that's just me. I guess, I guess I got busy with other things. And so, and that's how everybody is. You know, they get busy with things and, you know, you can't sit around thinking about Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Olympics at the same time, right? I mean, well, right, right. It's well, that's hard the, to hold all that in their head. Yeah, but that's the thing about the spectacle of our news media. And, like, I don't mean to sound too paranoid, but I start to wonder after a while if they, they want, if, if you know, powers or, or, or vested interests want us to be distracted. You know what I'm saying? And, and, are, and are choosing what we see on the news uh, in an effort to achieve that. I mean, it just seems like... I don't know. It seems like it should be a higher priority uh, than it is. You know, when you've got people out there fighting and bombs are being dropped and bullets are flying, it should be like the number one story on the news until it's over. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it should be. It should be. But, you know, this, this was about two weeks ago. Um, uh, there, was a, there was a suicide bombing that killed, I think, 100 people, which is the, the large, one of the largest attacks um, in about the last year or so. And these, these were... These were um, you know Iraqi citizens for the most part, but but you know I that that really didn't cause much more than a, a you know a slight blip on the radar of the public. So yeah, so you know it's it's like that. You know, I, like I said, I can't blame folks. You know, I fall I fall victim to it too. Sure, I think we all do. I think you know there's no way to be perfect about it, but. Uh, yeah. let, let me ask you this. I mean, like, so you're in Atlanta, you're working uh, in the army, and you're you're, you're climbing. Uh, you know, you're, you're making your way up the ladder into more and more uh, into jobs of greater and greater responsibility. Did you like uh, being in the army? Did you enjoy it? Oh my God, I, I am the last person that should have ever been in a uniform. <laughs> I mean, if you if you had asked me, uh, matter of fact, I, I just went to my uh, I went to my uh, high school class reunion here last year. And uh, most of the classmates who'd never seen, hadn't seen me in, you know, 30 mumble years, um, you know, they, they all were like, uh, wow, you joined the Army? Ah, I can't believe that. <laughs> right. You know, I was the last guy that they would have expected. I was a 98-pound weakling in school, and, you know, it was kind of a wallflower, wilting wallflower. But, but, yeah, so, you know, when my wife and I made this decision uh, for me to join, it was like, wow, that's, um, that is so not me at the time. Uh, but I did it anyways, you know, for the good of the family, not some, you know, for the good of the country too. Sure, I took raised my hand and took an oath, but it's really something I did for for my family and for myself, just to to put myself uh, through, you know, an experience like basic training and and going into the the big unknown void of what the army would be. And, and so, like I said, when I got to my first duty station in Atlanta, it was it was kind of a fantasy land. Um, and I kind of knew that at the time. After that, I got sent up to Alaska uh, with a with a with a regular infantry unit. So to where that was a, uh, Alaska. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, when I was in the army, um, I was I I can't really say that I enjoyed it. There were there were moments of of joy and moments of enjoyment, but. Overall, it, it just became, after a while, it just became a job, you know, just like any, you know, nine-to-five type job. 
although ours were more like 5.30 to 8.30 at night kind of hours, but, you know. Right. Well, and did you find did you find that it was, you know, it, when you look back on it, and now you're at this moment in your in your writing career where you've got this novel coming out to great acclaim, do you, you know, you must have learned certain things along the way in your job at the army and in the writing work that you did at the army that wound up paying dividends later. I mean, just the, just the basic discipline of being in the army and having to maintain that sort of regimen had to have helped, uh, because writing requires, uh, quite a bit of discipline. I mean, do you look at it that way? Um, yeah, I think to a degree, um, I think if we just go all the way back, if we go all the way back to basic training, that's where, that's where I think I changed as a person. Uh, you know, because it's just this rigorous screaming in your face at the time. They could still scream at you. They couldn't punch you, but they could still scream at you. And, and um, so, uh, and it was a very intense physical uh, experience. I was never a physical kid, never, um, never exercised or worked out or anything like that. Um, so that was the experience that kind of changed me and, and showed me I had boundaries that I could push past. You know, personal boundaries that I'd set, you know, for whatever reason, that I push past them and, and be a little bit better than I could be, as the old army slogan goes. <laughs> right. But, uh, <laughs> but you no, know, seriously, I was kind of a poster child for that. So, um, so yeah, I think that's when I I changed as a person, um, and I don't know. I guess it affected my writing. Uh, to a degree, but, but yeah, just the just the regiment and the discipline of the army definitely helped uh, when it comes to writing. Well, and then what about writing? Like, and I know obviously that was what your interest was, but how, like, how much of a uh, clear pursuit was it for you at the time you joined the army? Like, where in your life did you really get, get to the point where you started to write uh, creatively on a regular basis and really think of it as something that you were pursuing? Uh, beyond the level of just, you know, personal hobby or whatever? Yeah. Um, well, um, you know, I, I wrote stories as a kid, as a teenager, um, really, really, really bad stories, of course. Uh, but um, I think I got serious about it uh, when my my wife, who I was my girlfriend at the time, was dating her, and and I did uh, I did the unthinkable. I let her read some of my stories. Uh, which was probably the biggest act of, of love that I could have ever shown, was, you know, trusting her with my stories at the time, which, again, were really, really bad stories. But um, I remember walking out with her uh, along the street one night, and she turned to me and said, you know, I think you would make a really good writer. So just by that, by her having that amount of faith in me, um, it's kind of what, you know, put me on this new path, I guess. So I think that's the day, that's the hour, that's the moment I, I started getting serious as a writer. Um, and like I said, you know, I went to went to University of Oregon for four years and majored in English and was writing stories, uh, and stories and poems, and um, publishing them in really small places, really small journals and, and things like that. But uh, yeah, I always thought of myself as the great, great American novelist and... Um, uh, so I was, I kind of had that mindset by the time the army arrived and I got into, into the army and, um, just, just by necessity in my years in the army, uh, uh, the writing, the writing habits sort of dropped off just a little bit, uh, because you're working so many hours and you have your family you want to spend time with when you come home and, and so on and so forth. So I was still writing, but 
uh, just not as much as I was uh, before the Army. Well, now, and, and this is a question that I often have for people in the military who wind up writing fiction or who, um, you know, write a book about their experiences, is was being in the Army and the experiences that being in, in you know, the military might provide, was any of that a creative calculation? Like, did you think to yourself as you were joining, like, oh, I'm going to get a, a good book out of this maybe? Because, you know, so many of our, so many of our predecessors, you know, uh, have written big war books and, you you know the literary tradition and the lineage as well oh, as anybody. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just wondering if, like, that was factoring in or if that was, you know, a small thought kind of hanging around in the back of your mind as you went through all this stuff. Uh, at the time, it was student loans and pregnant wife, man. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> when, I joined, no, when I joined the Army. But, you know, seriously, when I think what you're talking about, um, I think the time that I ever thought, hey, I could get a book out of this is the day I boarded the airplane uh, for Iraq. Okay. Um, and I, and I want to, so, and I want to ask you, I mean, I'll, I'll let you finish whatever thought you were going to get started on, but I, I also want to make sure I ask you to describe that experience of landing, uh, of getting on that plane and then actually landing in a war zone, because that is obviously a, a marked transition from your previous military adventures. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. When I, uh, when I got on that plane, I was scared to death. Um, and not scared because I thought I was going to be killed or, you know, that I, have, I would have to face bombs, but I was, uh, I was afraid of the unknown. I had no idea. And here I, I should back up and say, I was a, I was a, a Sergeant first class in E7 at this point. So I was, I was in, I was in charge of other soldiers and you have to be, you know, the role model, you have to be the leader. <laughs> and here I was going into war and I had no fucking clue what to expect. So that's what was really preying on my mind, uh, just the fact that um, I didn't know what to expect. Um, the other thing was, um, as I've written about elsewhere, uh, when I boarded that plane, I had a copy of Joseph Heller's Catch-22 in, in, my, uh, in my hand. Um, and I'd never read Catch-22 before, and I didn't set out to, to write what they're calling the Iraq Wars answer to catch 22 although you know it's not a it's not a label I'm putting on myself but but so I didn't I didn't set out to write that but I did board the plane with catch 22 in my hand started reading it and I think that kind of shaped my whole mindset uh, for the next 11 months well I mean that's you know, it had to have made you finally attuned to the absurdities of war or given you like you know maybe like a major antenna a bit more receptive to that kind of stuff I mean it would have exactly to. I think Exactly. I think I think that's a good way of putting it. I think my antenna started rising out of my head, you know, as I was reading that book. So that when I got to the real absurdity of some of the stuff that I was living, you know, once I got into into Baghdad, then I could kind of process process that. Um, still have to, you know, smart start to salute smartly and march on. But um, I think I, I think Catch Twenty Two helped me be a little more jaundiced, maybe. Uh, toward you know what I was what I was going through at the time. So um, the other thing is, um, while I was in Iraq, I kept a daily journal. So I just kind of you know just kind of a brain vomit on the page every day, uh, just about every day, every day that I had strength to do it and energy to do it. I would uh, come back to my to my hooch to my trailer and sit on my cot and just write, write, write everything that had happened to me all the all the sights and sounds and smells and things people said and, 
you know, some of the some of the reports I saw come across my desk, photos I saw, all of that just kind of went into this stew of this of this journal. So, well, and what so was I was I go ahead. Good. No, I was going to say I was just I was writing it all as fast as I could just to capture it all because I knew that someday I didn't know how, but someday I knew I was going to be able to use this as, sure. as material. Sure. Well, and then what was uh, like a, a typical day? Not that there's anything, any such thing as a typical day, but what, what, you know, where were you? Were you in the green zone or were you like, where, where were you located? And what was your, what was a typical day in the life like for you there? Mm. Um, I was not in the green zone. They were probably about two or three miles away from us. Uh, I was over by Bag, kind of sandwiched between Abu Ghraib and uh, Baghdad International Airport on a, on a little, con- not little, but a compound called Camp, Camp Liberty. Camp Victory. Um, so, um, and it was, you know, it was a fairly large complex. Uh, we had, we had our PX, which is like our, our Walmart. You know, we had coffee, coffee huts. Uh, you know, espresso huts, uh, Burger King, the whole nine yards. Um, uh, real support uh, system there. So, so that's where I was. I had a trailer to myself. I was lucky. A lot of people. Uh, you know, had to had to room with somebody else. So I had this experience of living by myself in a trailer. Um, it's kind of a mobile home city there. And uh, yeah, I get up at uh, I get up probably around I can't remember now six or seven in the morning. Um, if I was being a really good soldier, I would go out for a run um, because when we were over there, our physical physical fitness um, program was basically on you because all the all the various soldiers in our company work different hours. So, so the physical exercise, uh, keeping that up was on you. So, so like I said, if I was, if it was a good day, I'd get up, go for a run and I'd run around this place called Z Lake, uh, just like the letter Z. It would say uh, a man-made uh, reservoir that Saddam Hussein had dug uh, around one of his palaces. So I'd run around that a couple laps, come back, shower, eat breakfast, and then go to work. And I think my work started at uh, my schedule started at eight every morning. Uh, sit at my desk for the next anywhere from ten to fourteen hours uh, with breaks for lunch or dinner. And uh, I would sit there and I would um, uh, I had a variety of, of different tasks, but mostly I would look at uh, all of the uh, all of these all of these significant activity reports that came in. Uh, which would tell us, you know, these soldiers were out on patrol and they came across, you know, a cache of weapons that they found or or there was an attack and this soldier died or, or whatever. Um, and I would take those reports and um, turn, them into, and turn them into news releases, into press releases. And then from there, you know, we have to write the, write the press releases, get them approved, and then it was up to me to send them out to the mainstream media. Um, and so that that kept me pretty busy uh, throughout the day, as you can imagine. And then I, you know, go home, uh, get off work at uh, uh, six o'clock, sometimes seven, and uh, go back to my trailer and uh, write in my journal, uh, read, or or watch watch DVDs on my on my computer. And uh, that was that was pretty much a typical day in my life. And how long were you over there for? Um, well, I was in Kuwait uh, for about a month and a half, um, and then I moved up to Baghdad, and I was up there um, for about another nine to ten months. So, 
so I was I was in the combat zone because Kuwait's still in the combat zone. I was in the combat zone for nearly 12 months, Goodness. just shy of 12 months. That's got to be hard to be separated from your family. That's got to be extremely stressful. Oh Lord, yeah. I mean that that was probably the worst part of it. Um, now I think it's a little bit different in the, in some of the combat zones or some overseas. Um, but at the time I didn't have a cell phone. Uh, I didn't have an internet connection on my computer in my in my hooch. I'd have to go to an internet cafe to to access the to, to access the internet um, for personal reasons, of course, because uh, at work you have the internet, but don't want to email your wife from work. <laughs> or or I'd have to uh, trudge about a mile and a half to um, to uh, to the uh, phone shack where you know a bunch of us would all be lined up in these little cubicles and. Uh, and just talk on a regular phone and call my wife. So I ended up calling her um, probably about two times a week. I, I talked to her and the kids. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a long, long uh, year God. for both of us. I can only imagine. Yeah. So um, were you ever? Did you ever feel uh, like? I mean, were you feeling? I guess you were unsafe the whole time you were there. But did you ever? Were you ever in imminent danger? Um. You know, I think you're always in imminent danger. You just don't know it when you're over there. Uh, but I never, I never felt that. There are a couple of times when, um, for instance, I'd be, I was laying in my hooch, uh, my cot one time, and I was, I even remember this. I was reading Jarhead. You know, I was reading the, the memoir Jarhead, and just at the time that Swafford was describing a bomb going off in his book, uh, we we had a mortar come down. On, on the uh, on Camp Liberty there, and just shook my whole trailer. So that was kind of like that was kind of like uh, sense around, you know, in the old movies where you'd go and be wired in the seats, uh, sense around. Uh, that was that was a little bit too real of an experience. Um, but yeah, so we had we did have mortars come down. About two weeks after I got into uh, Baghdad, uh, we had a mortar land uh, right in the courtyard of our PX. Post exchange and uh, went off and and killed uh, several soldiers. Uh, so that was that was right when I got there. So that was kind of like holy crap. Okay, well, <laughs> I guess this is what I had to look forward to for the next year. But but um, but I never I never came that close. Okay, and so how and how often were these mortar attacks happening? I mean, did was it when, was it something that happened very sporadically, or was it something that came in? Yeah, no, it, yeah, it was it was real sporadic. Um, I don't even know how many times it happened. And there were probably some times when, when mortars would land and I'd be inside the headquarters and my cubicle with the air conditioning going and I may not even know it, uh, may not even hear it outside. Um, but, yeah, it's probably, I don't know, five or six times that I can remember while I was there, uh, which is nothing, which pales in comparison to, to what the average soldier will face outside uh, outside the concertina wire on a daily basis. So, you know... If I talk about my boo-hoo-hoo war experience, it is nothing compared to what some of these guys and gals are going through out there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I say, did you ever see uh, the documentary Restrepo? I haven't, though it's, um, I've read the book, and man, that book just shook me. So yeah. I, need, I need to watch that. You know? that, was, that. I mean, that for me, for somebody who you know obviously has no immediate experience of it, felt it. That felt real, and it felt like you were in the thick of it, you know, in, in a way that... Um, you know, some of the news footage didn't necessarily bring, but right. And in going back to embedding reporters, that's a great example of somebody, you know, um, Sebastian Younger, who can go out 
and be with the soldiers and report back to us in such what I would call a masterpiece of a book. I mean, it was just an incredible reading experience. For anybody who wants to know what combat is like with the modern combat, they need to read that book or watch the documentary. So. Well, and you know, combat, like you said, like the modern war experience, it really has changed so much in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. You know, it, feel, it feels that way, uh, you know, because you're no longer dealing with, uh, you know, these really big state-sponsored armies. You're dealing with these crazy, you know, bands of a few hundred people or whatever. And, you know, we, the, weapon te- the weapons technology has changed so much that, I don't know, it just feels like everything's been tilted. It's, it's a different game. Exactly, and and I think that's just the pace of our growing technology. I mean, even in the year that I was over there, it felt like you know, it felt like some of the techniques, techniques and tactics of the of the enemy were changing and were adapting. Um, so you know, they're not dumb. You know, they're not, they're you know, the enemy is not dumb, and I think people sometimes you know underestimate uh, the power of, of what's going on over there. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's definitely a change, and I'm sure it's changed you know, probably a hundredfold since I was there in 2005. Uh, what's going on in, in, in the terrain in Afghanistan, for instance, is a whole other uh, type of uh, situation. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a totally different war each and every year, it seems like. Well, and then what about, I mean, obviously when you're, when you're there and you have work to do uh, and you're on duty, you don't have a lot of time to engage in the, in the politics of the thing. But with Iraq in particular, because the... Uh, the reasons for being there and the uh, political machinery that sort of, uh, you know, was responsible for the launch of the war, you know, was so controversial. Like, was there a lot of talk of that or did you think about all of that a lot? And were you thinking about the political leadership back home and what their motivations were and what, whether or not you should have even been there in the first place? Like, did any of those thoughts factor in and, and how much of that was uh, talked about on the ground among people in the military. You know, actually, I, I don't think I don't think as often as, as most people think because you know we're so freaking busy doing our jobs over there. We don't have time to you know stop and we don't have time to stop and smell the politicians. But you know, it's it just is kind of a, a constant grind. But but yeah, I mean, there are I'm, I'm sure people have their opinions in the army. Uh, I'm sure people have political opinions, but but you pretty much keep them to yourself um so so yeah i i think it's probably talked about um and certainly sometimes written about you know we see the rise of of military bloggers who are kind of pushing the bubble as far as um you know talking about politics and, and things but um but yeah i i didn't i didn't sit around you know talking about Bush's oil strategy, or you know, Dick Cheney's latest <laughs> move. You know, I didn't sit around on the stoop talking to people about that, but but you know, some of those probably going through my mind. I'm sure. Yeah, and then what about in the, What about uh, as you look back? Do you know what I'm saying? Now that you've, you're out of the service and you have some more perspective, and you've written this book, like has have you uh, developed any sort of like overarching idea of what what that war was? I mean, it seems. You know, there's so much of it, and so so much of the messaging, and so much of the uh, propaganda that goes into convincing a populace to support or convincing a. I mean, I guess you don't even need congressional support anymore. It doesn't feel like they even do that anymore. It feels like wars just sort of get launched. You know, like, but do you look back at it with any sort of clear-eyed perspective, or is it still confusing, or, or you know? 
Hmm. Well, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I really hate to get into politics. I, I, I try not to, but then again, I've written a book that one way or another, for better or worse, is going to be taken politically. You know, that wasn't my intent in writing it, but it's probably going to happen. So I'm prepared for that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I've always had um, certain feelings. I mean, I'm, I'm just like everybody else on 9-11 when I saw the, the towers came come down. You know, I felt that that national need for for vengeance, I guess it was, even if, even if it was a fleeting one. Um, there, was, there was that national feeling like, oh, they, you know, this has happened to us, now we've got to do something. But, you know, as time goes on and, you know, and things are said and there's congressional hearings and Colin Powell's called on the carpet, you know, your, your feeling starts to change a little bit. So, um, yeah, by the time I got over there, I was, like I said, I was, I was already, I was already starting to get cynical about the whole motivation about being over there, but, um, it's, it's something that you just kind of stuff inside yourself as a soldier and, and drive on. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? You can't, there's no way you can entertain that and do what you need to do while trying to stay alive. Well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's the other thing. You're, if you think about, if you sit around and torture yourself with why are we here, uh, you're just going to distract yourself from, from doing the job. So Right. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, where you come from. Like, are you from Montana originally? Like, where, where were you born? Uh, I was born in Pennsylvania. Okay. Actually, um, and grew up there. I lived there for eight years. Uh, and then I moved out to Northwest Wyoming, uh, Jackson, Wyoming. So, so that's where I grew up, you know, mostly in Jackson, Wyoming. I moved there when I was in fourth grade and graduated uh, high school. So, what what and, brought you to uh, Jackson? Uh, my father's job. Uh, my father's a minister, a Baptist minister, um, and so he got a uh, he got a job with the First Baptist Church in Jackson, and uh, that's what uh, that's what moved us out there. Oh wow! So that's not a, that's not a bad spot. Oh God, it was like living in paradise. But again, it's something you take for granted after a while. Oh yeah, the Grand Tetons. Okay, ho hum. You know when you're you know when you're a kid. But but at, but afterwards, uh, two years or three years after I moved away, it's like God, I really miss those Tetons. They were beautiful. <laughs> I like those Tetons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so did you grow up skiing and all that kind of stuff? Were you mountaineering or any of that? <laughs> no, I never mountaineered. Uh, I did ski for a little while, but. Um, that was almost too much of a jockey thing, you know, too much of a jock thing to do. So, like I said, I was, a, I was kind of kept to myself as a kid. Uh, a lot of, a lot of days walking around with my dog, you know, long, lonely hikes and I don't know, you know, um, yeah. So I, like I said, I was just, uh, just kind of a wallflower in, in high school, I guess. And then what, and then once you got out of high school, it was off to Oregon. Yeah, well, I, well, I um, actually, once I got out of high school, I uh, went to uh, the University of Wyoming for two years, uh, majored in theater, arts, of all things, down there, because at the time, I was going to be the next great actor. Uh, I had fallen in love with community theater when I was like 13 years old, so that was kind of my, my, my artistic bent at the time. I was going to say, that doesn't sound like a wallflower to me, somebody who, but I guess sometimes people who... Uh, are shy or, or sort of solitary that can find solace on the stage? Is that the, sort of the way that it was working for you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think so. <clears throat> I think that I, I, you know, I've always, I've always had this need to channel my creative 
my, my creative side somehow. And so, yeah, just being on the stage was a, a good way to, to channel it. Now, I should add that I'm, I'm, was not a very good actor. <laughs> um, I was, I tended to overact and make things big and large and, and things like that. But, um, but you know, I was passable. I mean, I got a couple of lead roles when I was at the university, but in what, um, in what, what place? Um, the, well, the, well, one lead role was in, um, the rivals. Uh, it's a, uh, Reformation comedy, uh, written 1700s by, by Richard Brinsley Sheridan. um, it's, it has a character named uh, Mrs. Malaprop, so that's where we get Malapropisms from. Um, so yeah, I had a role in that, and then um, you know a few others, um, some musicals and things like that. So can you sing? Uh, no, I can I can sing in the privacy of my car, um, <laughs> and, not, and, and not even when my wife's with me. Um, but no, I you know I was always in the chorus. Okay, I could I could hide in the chorus. Right. And when, like, so you were doing mostly uh, acting in community theater through high school. You go to Wyoming, you major in theater. And then what was the break that took you out to Oregon? Um, well, meeting my wife, um, <clears throat> I came back uh, for a summer and I was doing uh, summer stock theater there in Jackson. Uh, we had these Wild West melodrama um, plays that would put up, be put on every, every summer for the tourists. So for, for, the, for two summers after I graduated high school, um, I did that. And um, I met my wife on my second summer home, uh, when I came home, I mean, um, and uh, saw her one day. I walked into my dad's church uh, during a service. She was up in the choir, uh, which is really odd because she doesn't sing and she hates singing. So why she was even there, I don't know, <laughs> hand of God, hand of, hand of fate. Uh, but I saw her and literally love her first sight, Brad. So. Really? So, yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, for me, it took her about three years, even after we were married, to fall in love with For you, yeah. it was love at first sight. For her, it was love yeah. after three long years. Of yeah, pursuit. pretty much. You know, three, three long years of convincing. Now, nah, she, she liked me okay, I think. She got married to me. Uh, but then uh, for our honeymoon, on a wild hair idea, I said, hey, let's go to Oregon. I've always wanted to go to Oregon. And while we're there, why don't we look at, um, why don't we look at stopping at the universities? So that's kind of what we did. We kind of made it a, a working honeymoon where we where we had fun and went to universities. I went to University of Oregon and Eugene, and uh, yeah. So that's and then we came back um, after the honeymoon and hung around about another month in Jackson and packed all of our worldly possessions into the smallest size U-Haul that they made at the time and drove out there with about I don't know two or three hundred bucks in our pocket after after enough for rent and, uh, you know, living on a prayer and a dream kind of thing. So, so that's how I ended up in Oregon. Wow. Okay. And so, uh, what is next for you? You know, like you've got this book coming out and, and what's happening. I mean, you're going to do some, I'm, I'm imagining you're going to do some touring with this book. Yeah. Uh, the folks at Grove have been really great. Uh, they've been lining up some, some tours and, uh, some book festivals for me. So, I'll be going doing going around doing that September and October mostly, um, and um, yeah, just uh, looking forward to getting out there and meeting readers and, and other writers. Um, and uh, but if I'm working on the next novel uh, right now. It's it, the, the novel's actually already written, but I'm working on now. It was written long before Fobbit, and um, and so now I'm just going back over and, and doing some 
pretty strenuous uh, revisions on it. And hopefully, I've told my agent I'm going to get it to get it to him before I go out on tour. I don't know if that's going to be that's actually going to happen, but um, but hopefully get that uh, get that to him sometime before um, Christmas. And so, what's this? Um, what's this uh, second book called, or the the second book that was actually the first book? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, the working title is Double, which is D U B B L E, and it's the character's last name, the main character's last name. And uh, Elevator Pitch, uh, it's about a, um, a 30-year-old uh, short person, midget, who goes to work uh, in Hollywood in the 1940s for a child actor. So he's the stunt double for uh, this child actor. And um, all sorts of hijinks ensue and, and so on and so forth. So. Uh, P- Peter Dinklage's agent, if you're listening, this is... I yeah, there like... you go. <laughs> Call me. Call me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, so, and, and, you know, I'm curious with the, with the kind of reception that Fobbit has received out of the gates, uh, has there been any movie interest? And then also have you, have you sensed, you know, like what happens, uh, when a book gets called an instant classic by publishers weekly, like did your, your publisher must be over the moon and are they ramping up efforts to get the book out? Like, have you noticed any, any detectable change there in the approach? Well, I don't know. I, I think, you know, I think, I think Grove's always been behind me. Um, they've always been great to me. Um, since they, uh, since they took a, took a uh, leap of faith with me as a, as a untested debut novelist, uh, as far as, um, Hollywood's concerned, uh, I, you know, there have probably been a couple of nibbles and, uh, I talked to my agent the other day and I uh, said, so, you know, basically what's up with Hollywood? And he goes, ah, we're doing this, that, and the other. Um, you know, I think I think mostly uh, they just don't they just don't tell me each and every time um, anybody uh, asks for a, a copy of the book um, because it, it, you know it really doesn't matter until money's on the table. So so far there's been no money on the table. So I just go about my I just go about my daily life here in Butte, Montana. You know, and uh, just just do the things I know I need to do and, and leave that. Just the Hollywood work up to my agent. Just get up. At, just get up at three thirty every morning and get get your words <laughs> yeah. done. Uh, That's are, right. Get, get the words out. How many hours do you work every morning before work? You just like three thirty to seven or something like that. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's about that. And of course, I'm blogging at the same time and and answering email and, and trying to stuff all of this activity and all of the all of the uh, various pre-pub activity as well. Stuff that into these uh, short hours. So. Yeah, it's been um, it's been challenging. I wish well, I had octopus arms or something. Well, but you know it, it, what it makes me think is that it, you know when somebody has whatever it is that makes a person a writer, when somebody has that, it just goes to show you that nothing is going to stop it. You're going to get up at three thirty every morning and work until seven or seven thirty, and then go work your day job for eight to ten hours. Right. You know what I'm like that's. That you know, that's not sane. <laughs> um, it's not sane. I, mean, you know, I don't. I don't think there's any writer that's sane. No. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and I don't mean. I obviously say that like somewhat tongue in cheek, but I mean it's at a very rigorous schedule to keep, and only somebody who can't help it would do that. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you don't have the level of commitment or the the, the kind of desire that you need um, to put the you know to put a novel together, it's it's just not going to happen. But if you do have that, no day job or no uh, war experience or no, whatever it is, is going to stop you from getting words on the page. It's just, I see that presented to me over and over again, um, both on this show and just, you know, working with writers and knowing people. It's, it's amazing to me that common strain. 
Oh yeah, I you know I you know I I certainly have drive, <laughs> if nothing else. Uh, I'm ambitious. Um, I may be ambitious right into the grave, but you know I I've, I've got it. So right. Well, yeah. what and what what kind of career? I mean, if you had the ideal career, um, you know, would, you would obviously be just just writing books, publishing books. Um, do you have a sense of like you know when you get to the end of the road, what you would like? your career to look like? Is there a number of books that you have set for yourself as a goal or anything like that? Or is it just more of a, uh, day to time approach? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm like every other writer, um, who has dreams of James Patterson, Stephen King and E.L. James, you know, God damn her, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm like everybody else who, um, who dreams of, you know, getting up at, at a, at a reasonable hour and writing for, you know, the next eight to 10 hours, you know, but, um, no, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to kid myself. I'm, I'm keeping the day job, Yeah, keeping well. the day job. And, um, you know, I, I certainly have, you know, I've, I've certainly got several more books inside me as well as short stories. You know, I'm working on, on other things as well. So, so yeah, so I guess I'm just kind of laser focused on, on novel number two double right now. Um, and um and and the next steps here with father so well well uh i think you're on your way that's my that's my prediction i think you're on your way to to big things it sounds like this is uh you know going to be um uh, a very successful book um you know and and I, I congratulate you on it and i hope that uh the tour treats you well and i wish you the best of luck with double uh as well thanks brad i appreciate that <laughs> All right, everybody, there you go. That's the program. That is it. That is my conversation with David Abrams. Go get his novel. It's called Fobbit, and it is out there right now from Grove Atlantic. You can find him online at davidabramsbooks.com. He's on Facebook. He's on Pinterest. Is that how you pronounce that? Pinterest? He's on Goodreads, and his Twitter handle is uh, I'm David Abrams, at I'm David Abrams. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy, if you want to read my deeply personal tweeting. The show has a Facebook presence, and if you want to email me, once again, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, what else is happening? I'm caffeinated. It's late. I drank some espresso thinking it would help me out. It would help me crank this out. It would help me get this done. And the good news is that it has helped me get this done. It has helped me crank this out. But the bad news, the bad news is that I might be up until 3 a.m. tonight. And did I mention that there was an earthquake last night? Did I mention that? It actually woke us up. My wife and I woke up at the exact same time, and uh, I sort of just went, you know, rolled over and went back to sleep. My wife thought it was our dog Walter under the bed scratching himself. Uh, neither of us realized that it was, in fact, seismic activity. Please remember that Sherwood Anderson died of peritonitis after swallowing a toothpick and that Matisse played the violin. I will be back again soon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'll have a full report from Israel in the next episode and uh, hopefully some interesting information and some anecdotes from that particular journey. Thank you, as always, for listening. I appreciate it. I will be back soon. I will talk to you soon. Uh, please subscribe to the program. Have I already said that? I think I've already said that. Please tell your friends about it. Please uh, tweet about it. Please obey me. Do you hear me? Obey me. Obey me.